If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Romans 2, I'm sure you'll find a good help as we look at this today under the title, Truly Converted. And in these opening chapters of Romans, Paul is acting like the prosecution barrister, putting forward the evidence for the guilt of the whole world, whole world guilty before God. And he first of all has clearly shown that the the pagan world, which has rejected the truth about God, the Creator, that they are guilty. And then he moves his sights onto the the moral people who were maybe thinking, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. But these morally upright people, at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, you're guilty as well because you have committed the very same sins. And then his focus goes to those who were closest to his heart, to the Jewish people. And this is maybe the hardest group of all that Paul has to seek to convince of their guilt before God, because they were God's chosen people. They were his special people. How could they be guilty before God? But Paul speaks of how it's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who are right with God. And then he really shocked the Jews, what we were looking at last week, by saying that there are Gentiles who have not heard the law who do what the law requires. Now, he doesn't mean that they're saved, but he's saying that, listen, you Jews, there are Gentiles out there, non-Jews, who by their behavior are more Jewish than you are. And a similar application can be made today when we say that there are many outside of the church who appear to be more Christian in their conduct than many of those who profess to be Christian. There are many outside the church who act with more love and integrity, sadly, more so than many within the church at times. And it's in the light of what Paul is saying here that the challenge goes out to those who profess to belong to the Lord, does your conduct show that you truly belong to the Lord or not? It is very easy for those of us within the church to point the finger at those who are outside. But the big question is, how does God see us? How does God view us who claim to be His? As we think once more now about the Jewish people, the first thing we're going to see here today are their privileges. And Paul speaks of some of the great privileges that those who were Jewish had. And I'm going to mention six of them here. And these have been well summarized by a 19th century Scottish preacher called Robert Haldian. Somebody kindly gave me a gift of his commentary. And if you're listening to me on Friday on the We Talks on Revival, Robert Haldian was the 76-year-old Scottish minister who was in Geneva, who at 76 traveled all the way from Geneva to Dundee for a short period of time to help with the work there in the time of revival back in 1839. Now, Haldane in his commentary, he mentioned six things about the privileges that the Jews had. 
First of all, bearing the name of Jew. This included the, the privilege of being the covenant people of God and receiving God's blessing down through the centuries, which came from those covenant promises, how God blessed them in so many special ways. Then secondly, having received the law. They have God's revelation of truth, which included a proper understanding of life, an understanding which the rest of the world didn't have. Having the true God then as their God. It speaks the end of verse 17 and about how they boast in God. Other nations were steeped in superstition, having pieces of wood and stone and bowing down to them and calling them their God. They were worshipping these false gods, whereas the Jews had the true God, the true knowledge of God and how he should be worshipped. Do you remember that, that story of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? And they got into a debate about where the right place to worship was. And this is what Jesus said to her. And speaking as a Jew, he says, you worship what you do not know, you Samaritans, basically. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So while the rest of the world had a wrong idea of God, the Jews had received the proper knowledge of God. And then fourthly, knowing God's will, the beginning of verse 18 there. The Jews, unlike other people, had clear teaching of what God required of them, what God required of them for salvation, what God required of them in how they lived. And then the fifth point discerning between good and evil. I love the way it's put there, how you approve what is excellent. The Jewish people were particularly taught what is good and pleasing to the Lord and what is not pleasing to the Lord. So while so much of the world was in ignorance about how to please God, they had the truth about how to please God. And then their ability to teach and to guide. Look at verse 19. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. These people of Israel were to be a light to the world, sharing the truth to a world that was in darkness and a world that was blinded and in ignorance. Now, you look at those privileges. The Israelites had these amazing privileges, and they were aware of them. They were aware that they were a privileged people. But what they so often failed to realize was that with these great privileges came great responsibility. More would be expected of them than from other people because of the extra privileges they had. Now, this is so relevant for those of us who belong to the church. We need to realize that being part of the church, we share in these privileges that the Jewish people had. Indeed, our privileges are indeed are much more. Let's quickly go through them again. Bearing the name of a Jew. Being part of the church, we bear the name of Christ. Christians, what a privilege to be identified with Jesus. Having received the law, they had the Old Testament law. We have the completed New Testament now with all that extra teaching about Jesus having the true knowledge, having the true God as their God. We now know much more about God than the Old Testament Jews did because Jesus is the final revelation of his Father. 
knowing God's will. As we read the Bible, as we hear it taught, we know what God requires of us. We know what God wants of us. Discerning between good and evil. We live in society today where people haven't a clue about what is right and what is wrong. But we do. We have this knowledge from His Word. And then their ability to to teach and to guide. We have this light of Christ to to share with the world around us. And there are scores of us here today who, whether in church and organizations or in our homes, their own families, are involved in teaching the truth. And so the privileges that the Jews had, we have as the new Israel today, the people of God in the New Testament. We have these privileges plus so much more. And you know, these are privileges we should be thankful for. These are privileges we should never take for granted. We should not be proud or arrogant thinking we're better, but how God has been kind and gracious to us. And need to understand that with these privileges, there comes much greater responsibility. I mentioned that revival in Dundee in 1839, and Robert Murray McShane, his church in St. Peter's, was at the heart of it. Murray McShane once said about how his people, they were like horses who had so much hay in their stall that they would pull it down and trample on it and just use it as bedding instead of food. And he said how his people often were like that in his congregation. So much privilege of the Word of God, they take it for granted and they don't swallow it and take it in as they should. We need to be careful because with so much privilege comes so much responsibility. So the privileges that were there. And then secondly, we have the failure in verses 21 to 24 here. The Jews had had these great privileges as Jews, particularly the privilege of having God's Word, they need to realize that the responsibility on them to be obedient was much greater. But Paul is asking these privileged people, these privileged Jews, if they have been obedient in the light of what they've received. Look what he says there in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that no one must you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The implication behind these questions is that they have not kept these commands. They have been guilty of stealing, of adultery, of robbing idol temples. Now, that last one is curious, and many commentators used a lot of ink in trying to figure out what that means, and the reality is they're not even sure. Why did Paul bring this up of robbing temples? Uh, It's very hard to find something that happened that indeed correlates to it. But I think the main thing being singled out here by Paul, including that sin, is the inconsistency in the life of the Jews. They taught the law, memorized the law, but they did not keep the law. They were guilty of stealing and adultery. They abhorred idols. They were opposed to any sort of idolatry, but that didn't stop them from benefiting from the sale 
of stolen idols. That's what he appears to be talking about. Financial benefit was a good excuse for them to allow inconsistency in their practice. And you know, it still happens today. How many times do Christians cut corners in regards to honesty and stealing if it will save them a bit of money? But the result of this inconsistency was not good. Look at verse 23, what he says is a result of these Jews who have had these privileges of their failure to keep the law. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And there he's quoting from Isaiah, so it's not a new problem. They failed to remember that they had a great responsibility to be a witness to the glory and greatness of God by living obediently and living consistently according to God's law. But they had failed. And Paul's language, as he describes the impact of their disobedience, is strong. He says their sin brings dishonor to God. Their sin blasphemes God's name. That word blaspheme literally means to hurt the name. Here were a people who were to be a light to the nations. You think of Solomon and his faithfulness and wisdom, how the Queen of Sheba, these nations came to see what God was doing. But sadly, that was turned around when the people went into sin and they dragged God's name into the dirt by the filth of their sin and their inconsistency in following the Lord. And indeed, it is documented that from the time of Jesus' death, that the morality of the Jewish people went downhill much further. And so by the time that Paul is writing here, their morality had gone down and continued to go down, which would result in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But here is a great challenge for all of us who belong to this church to those of us who have had the great privilege of sitting under biblical teaching, the great privilege of having Bibles in our homes that we can read, when the world outside looks at how we live, does our conduct bring honor or shame to the name of God, to the name of Jesus? What do our lives teach other people about God and Jesus? There's an expression that you are the only Bible that many a person will read. And if people read you as a Bible, as a, read you as a person who comes to church and sits under the Bible's teaching, what are they learning about God? Are they seeing the beauty of Christ, the love, the integrity of Christ? Or do they see what they were seeing in the Jews? Who, people who have the Word, but far too often follow the sinful ways of the world rather than the holiness that God requires. So here's the challenge. You've got the Word, you've got all these privileges, but you fail to keep it. And this leads to the final point, which is the challenge in verses 25 to 29. Now, let's be very careful here. The challenge Paul gives to the Jews here is, is not what we might expect. He's not saying to them, roll up your sleeves, 
and work harder at keeping the law. The challenge he's giving to them is something far greater than that. And Paul uses circumcision to get his point across here. Circumcision was the cutting away of the male foreskin. Circumcision was a sign of belonging to the people of God, the children of Israel. It was a national sign. It was a sign of belonging to the covenant people. But importantly, though, it was also a sign of the cutting away of sin from within a person's heart. It was an outward sign to point to inward cleansing by the Lord. Now, Paul, when he was writing to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 2, he uses the terms circumcision and baptism interchangeably. We'll bring this wee passage up on the screen there. Speaking of Jesus, he says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he says what Jesus has done is he's cut away that sin within you. Then he goes on and says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, it is clear from that passage that both circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament are signs pointing to the same thing, to the inward work of the Spirit in making people born again, of cutting away their sinful nature to replace it with the new nature of Christ, this inward work which is essential for salvation. Now, returning to Romans here, look at verse 25, what he says. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Now, the reason Paul says circumcision, he's talking here now about the outward sign, the reason why he says it's of no value in this situation is when someone does not obey the law. He's saying that their actions show that despite having the outward sign of cleansing from sin, it has never happened in their heart. Yes, their flesh might have been cut away outwardly, but their sin was not cut away within. They have not been transformed by God on the inside, and He knows they've not been transformed because they live a life which is not in obedience to the law of God. If truly they had been changed in their hearts, their actions would have followed. Whereas, look at verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised as a Gentile keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And so Paul says, but such a person who doesn't have the sign of circumcision, the sign of salvation, he appears to have the reality of it in his heart and is therefore in a much better position. The sign is not the crucial thing Paul is teaching. It's whether the reality has happened within you. And so he says in verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law 
will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So he's saying that pagan person outside who hasn't had all the benefits, hasn't had the sign of circumcision applied to them, but they will condemn you because they show that the reality of God's saving work has happened in their heart. And so Paul's conclusion gets the very heart of his challenge here in verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is saying, as important and as helpful as the outward sign of circumcision is, what matters is, has the reality happened in your heart? And a person is only a true Jew if it has happened in their heart and they have been changed within them. This inward circumcision is a work of the Spirit of God. This inward circumcision is the same as being born again. It's being transformed in your soul by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, the challenge that Paul is leaving here to these Jewish listeners is not to try harder at keeping the law, but rather the challenge to these Jews is, does how you live show that you have been circumcised in your heart or not? This shows us that whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament period, Salvation was never by keeping the law. Salvation was never by religious duty or religious rituals, whether circumcision or baptism. But salvation is through what these signs point to. It is the circumcision. It is the baptism of the heart. It is being born again by the Spirit of God. Has this happened to you? Has that sin been cut away in your heart? I'm not asking you if you're religious. I'm asking you if the reality of rebirth can be seen in you in a new life of faith and a life of obedience to the Lord. Have you been circumcised in your heart? Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Jesus said that unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember who he said that to? It was Nicodemus, a very religious and upright Jew. And says, Nicodemus, you have your religion. You have what you try to do. It's not enough. You have to be changed in your heart. Are you living a new life of faith and obedience which shows that this work has happened in your soul? Are you a person who once was spiritually dead, who has been made alive by Christ, has been brought into this relationship with Jesus that has changed who you are? I was listening to a very interesting video, or watching a very interesting video this week on YouTube about the danger of the sinner's prayer. 
Most of us, when we came to Christ and salvation, we said a prayer. We would have said a prayer acknowledging our sin. We said a prayer acknowledging that our only hope is Jesus and His death. And we would have said a prayer asking Jesus to help us to be the Lord, for Him to be the Lord of our lives. And this video, which was featuring the teaching of very, some very good American preachers, it was saying it's a great danger. The people, once they have said a prayer, asking Jesus to be their Savior and Lord, once they've said that prayer, they think they're born again. Now, you can say that prayer, and you have been born again, because it's real, it's genuine. You genuinely have a faith in Christ. You genuinely have embraced Him as your Lord, and that change has happened in your heart to coincide with that. But you can have said that prayer, maybe from the back of a, a tract or something. You could have said that prayer, and you are not saved because you have not been changed in your heart. You do not have genuine faith and repentance. The big question is today, as God looks upon you, not your face, not how you're dressed, as God looks upon your soul, what does He say? Does He see the soul of a religious person, a person who seeks to be upright, but a person who's still dead within? Or does He see within your soul a soul that has been changed, a heart that has been born again, a heart that's come to life and is in a new and living relationship with Christ in which you embrace Him as Savior and Lord. It comes down to this. Do you have a real saving relationship with Jesus? We were thinking on Wednesday and Thursday nights at our grow groups of that very scary passage in Matthew's Gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus will speak to people who have prophesied in His name, people who have driven out evil spirits in His name, people who have done tremendous, miraculous works in His name. He will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. They didn't have a real relationship with him. And that was Judas Iscariot. He went out to preach. He went out to cast out evil spirits. He went out to do miracles. And he did those things. But he wasn't right in his heart. And you know the scary thing is, you could have come through membership class in Brookside. You could be a member of the church committee. You could be an elder. You could be a minister even. Doing all these religious duties but maybe not right with the Lord. In your heart, have you been born again? In your heart, have you entered into that relationship with Christ where you've received and rested on Him alone for salvation, where you've repented of your sin, where you've seriously and with determination turned from your sin to follow Him 
with a new obedience. Does your life back up what you profess? Let us pray. Father, you see within each of our hearts. And Father, we pray that that this message today would not unduly trouble those who are genuinely saved, but it would encourage them, Father, in their life of faith and obedience. But Father, if there's any here today who have professed the name of Jesus as their Savior and Lord, but Father, they have never truly been born again. Trouble them, Father. Help them to be aware of where they stand and bring them to true new birth and true faith and repentance and into a real living relationship with Christ. Father, forgive us if how we have conducted ourselves, forgive us of how we have spoken to people. Father, it has brought shame to the name of Christ. Help us all is to remember that with great privilege and particularly with the greatest privilege of all, the privilege of salvation and knowing Jesus, there comes great, great responsibility. Father, give us the grace we need. Truly be those who are born again and walking the ways of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.